we're going to turn our attention right to the uh, practical issues of treating patients and using cases as a way of, uh, of, uh, of introducing those uh, therapeutic topics. Our, our next speaker is Susanna Nagy, who's an assistant professor uh, of medicine at Duke. Susanna has been one of the real rapidly emerging leaders in the field of HCV therapeutics, uh, and so we're looking very much forward to her uh, presentation. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So, yeah, we're going to turn now um, to uh, a clinic patient and try to discuss this in the setting of a clinic patient, so hopefully get into the need of how to manage patients. And we specifically wanted to focus on patients who are treatment naive for their chronic hepatitis C. And we will mostly discuss this in the context of hep C mono-infection, but also get into the trials um, of co-infection that we have seen in terms of results that have been um, publicly presented um, over the past few uh, months at Croy specifically. So um, I don't know if it looks at yeah, I think. So, so I am um, from Duke University, and apparently because I use a Macintosh, purple is now the new Duke blue. Um, but truth is, I'm a Terrapin fan, so it doesn't matter to me either way. <clears throat> so I put this together, actually, a slide to help us understand where we are right now in terms of treatment response um, with the new direct acting antivirals. And I think most of you have seen slides that look at the increase in SVR that we've seen over the years, maybe the past two decades, with the addition of ribavirin, the pegylation of interferon, and then ultimately a nice jump um, from about 40% to about a 70% cure rate um, once we had the addition of a, a single direct acting antiviral. And then this I've added as kind of our crystal ball of what we think um, is coming within the next three to five years, um, which I think ultimately we all now know is interferon sparing, direct acting antiviral combinations that will offer cure rates of over 90%, at least in the setting of treatment naive non serotic patients. Um, beyond that, I think we um, still are not sure, but hopeful that uh, we'll get similar cure rates for all of our difficult to treat patients. So the first case, and actually the only case, so we're going to discuss one case as we move through this, is um, of a 52-year-old man of African descent who's referred to your clinic after he has a new diagnosis of HCV by his PCP, who is on the ball and is testing the birth cohort uh, population. Uh, this patient is very upset and wanted therapy yesterday as soon as he found out that he was diagnosed with HCV. Um, the PCP also did an HIV ELISA and a hep, C, a hep B surface antibody, um, recognizing the patient is now negative for HIV and immune to hep B. So the first question um, for the ARS is, what additional testing is warranted now that this patient has shown up to your clinic? Uh, would you order HCVRNA, HCV genotype, an IL-28 genotype, liver biopsy, all of the above, or some of the combinations of the above. Um, so for those of you who have not seen the data regarding IL-28, this is actually something that Dr. Thomas was alluding to. This is a genetic polymorphism um, that is a single base pair change that is now recognized um, that if someone carries this recessive change um, and they carry it as a homozygote, that they are not only have an improved chance of clearing the virus spontaneously when infected, but also the ability to clear the virus um, once exposed to interferon and ribavirin. And at least in the early studies with the addition of a DAA, it still appears to predict response to therapy, recognizing that indeed patients of certain ethnic um, and racial backgrounds carry this more or less frequently, high prevalence of this um, favorable allele in the Asian continent and a very low prevalence of it on the African continent. So uh, let's see if we can get uh, some responses here. Sorry about that. So many choices here. We'll see what folks think. All right, so some, most people say all of the above or some combination of the above. Um, and, uh, and I suspect if I had not had IL-28 in there, most people would have then said all of the above. So I think the one questionable here is the IL-28. Not everyone uses that in their practice. Some people do and some people don't. Um, but certainly I think at this, in this case, with a positive hep C antibody, you would need to confirm chronic infection. And then ultimately if that patient is considered a, tr uh, a patient who could receive interferon, you'd want to know what their genotype is to make decisions on therapy to have a conversation with the patient about their ability to respond to treatment. And that ultimately, if they're not a genotype 2 or 3 patient, 
then you're clearly going to want to further stage this patient uh, with a liver biopsy. And that is definitely something that I certainly and I think many folks still recommend. Um, I, I think that if our crystal ball did not show that we would have improved response rates beyond the current triple therapies, um, then we would be offering, wanting to offer therapy to all comers who met criteria. But given that we do know that we have improved therapies, dose once a day, probably as a fixed-dose combination in, in the near future, um, interferon sparing with few adverse events and, um, and fewer, hopefully, drug-drug interactions, you're really going to make a decision recognizing that that's the future of HGV therapy and not practicing um, with, with the expectation that, that we have nothing uh, else to come. So question number two is, should you get the HCV RNA back and the genotype? This patient has a very high viral load, as you may expect, and is genotype 1A. So for this patient, as he's sitting in front of you and you consider his characteristics, um, what would you tell him is his chance of achieving a sustained biologic response, um, which obviously we all recognize is equivalent to a cure of this viral infection? Okay, so some of you, so about half of you say 70%, um, about a third of you say 40 to 50%, and then some of you are less optimistic. Um, so I would say, given that this is a HCV mono-infected patient, that he is of African descent, that he is a genotype 1A with a high viral load, that his chance of cure is probably in the 40 to 50% range. Um, I think depending on what his other underlying um, fibrosis level is, et cetera, that may change. But ultimately in this setting, based on the current clinical trials, we would argue that he has about a 40 to 50% chance of cure. So this is just to show you some of the data to support that. And I'm going to try my best not to turn around and just point at this because then you won't be able to hear me. Um, but this is actually the SPRINT-2 study. So this was the phase three bosepervir study, looking at lead-in phase for four weeks followed by bosepervir. Um, this was also using response-guided therapy. So here in blue is the response-guided therapy arm. These are patients who have a relatively rapid virologic response with suppression by week eight. So it's four weeks of lead-in plus the four weeks with the addition of bosepervir. Those patients who remain negative were able to receive 28 weeks of therapy versus 48 weeks of therapy. And the 48 weeks are the patients in green here. And as you can see, this was a stratified study by patients who were of African descent versus non-African descent. And we're seeing cure rates close to 70% in all comers, or in the, in the non-African descent patients, but closer to 40 to 50% in patients who are of African descent. And again, there's a difference there as well where it appears that these patients may actually benefit from a longer course of therapy. So this is the advanced study. This is the phase three telaprevir study in patients who are treatment naive with genotype one virus. Overall treatment um, responses, as you can see here in the semi-purple bar is 75, so about a 70%, again, cure rate. And if we look specifically at patients by their ethnicity and racial makeup, patients who are of African descent, again, do very well compared to where they would be if they were receiving only the standard of care at that time, which is pagan riba. But clearly there is a difference here when compared to their patients, to the patients of European descent. And it actually appears that patients of Latino uh, descent do very well in this setting. So, so there is a difference here. Um, part of this may be explained, again, by the fact that IL-28 still matters and that these patients are going to be less frequent carriers of the favorable uh, allele, uh, but that ultimately this is something that you must consider for your patient. The other issue, as, um, as you heard a little bit about, I think, earlier, and that you may hear a bit more about when, when Dr. Wiles talks on resistance, is that genotype, uh, or, or, uh, genotype 1 subtype does matter. So we clearly see that patients who are genotype 1A do have a lower barrier in terms of developing resistance to the first wave uh, protease inhibitors. And indeed, this may play out down the road when we're looking at interferon sparing. So clearly, genotype 1Bs do very, very well with interferon sparing compounds um, but that ultimately 1As will have higher breakthrough rates, higher relapse rates, and higher resistance. So this is also something that you really want to consider. This is looking in the setting of telaprevir. This is looking in the setting of uh, bosepravir, and again showing that we are seeing differences between 1Bs and 1As in terms of response rates. Again, something that you want to consider for your patient ultimately when you're having a discussion with them um, at the bedside. So now we're going to turn to question number three. What length of treatment would you inform this patient is most likely um, what he will receive? And I think this is really important. The patients read in the lay press that, you know, you can be cured faster, higher rates of cure, that these are the wonder drugs, um, and everyone wants them now. And so it's important, I think, 
critically important at this point to set the appropriate expectation for the patients when they come into the room. And I think we spend a lot of time educating patients um, about what those expectations should be. So um, did we get a... There we go. So most of you actually say 48 weeks, which is fantastic. So in this patient, um, recognizing um, his African descent background, and then ultimately thinking of several other key factors that may um, make a decision in this. So, so I think you said 48 weeks because you probably know what's coming. Um, ultimately, I would argue that you need more information, that we uh, fibrosis staging is critically important in making a decision about how long uh, a therapy this patient gets, but that ultimately um, it's not going to be 24 weeks for a majority of the patients that we take care of, and that's critically important for these folks to understand. So let's get to this. So again, the SPRINT-2 study, Bosepervir Phase 3, and again, this was the stratified study by, by, by race. And we see here that patients who are of African descent um, clearly had lower rates of being able to meet the criteria to go into response-guided therapy, right? So the, the term that we use for this is the early rapid virologic response. Those patients who had clear rapid declines in their viral load suppressed by week 8 on Bosepervir, um, and who stayed negative through week 24. So, though, so if you look at the African descent patients, about 30% met that criteria. So the other, it means the other 70% required a full year of therapy. And patients who were um, non-African descent was about a 45 to 50% chance. So it still means that you have a 50-50 chance of receiving 48 weeks of treatment. But if you ultimately look at the response rate, so if you are one of those patients who meets that ERVR criteria, you have a very, very good chance of going on to achieve a cure, even with response-guided therapy. And that's, I think, very, very good news for those select patients. Um, but it's also important for them to understand that you won't have this information until they're on therapy. Um, but we do have some predictors that may help you understand before they're on therapy, um, where they may fall in this range. And I think that's also important. And this is where some people use the IL-28 polymorphism to make that decision. Um, so this is just looking at the Illuminate. Again, this was a phase three telapavir. Again, hep C mono-infected, genotype one. Um, this was specifically looking at the role of, of, of response-guided therapy. Is response-guided therapy appropriate? Does it uh, offer the same cure rates in these select patients? You can see here that 65% of these patients achieved an uh, early rapid virologic response. So a little bit over 50% were able to have shortened courses of therapy. And then, indeed, there was no difference if you received 24 weeks versus 48 weeks if you were in that special population who was able to, um, to respond very rapidly. And then if we... Oops. Okay. There's a slide missing, I think. Um, but ultimately, if we break this down by ethnicity, we, we again see that in the Telapavir study that patients of African descent and of Latino descent maybe also had lower um, rates of achieving ERVR and, and ultimately um, uh, required – more, more of them required 48 weeks of therapy. So let's talk about other predictors, predictors that you may be able to use either on therapy or off therapy to make decisions. So, you know, a lot of people talk about the fact that um, is the addition of the DAA always the appropriate thing for patients? And I know that we have a lot of patients who now hear about these wonder drugs, they come in, and they want nothing other than the wonder drug. Um, I think it's pretty easy to convince patients sometimes otherwise, given the adverse event profiles um, and the difficulty of taking the drugs, um, how you have to take them, the frequency of taking the doses, the number of pills that you have to take. But it, So it is a conversation that I think should be had at least with specific patients. Um, so this is actually something from the SPRINT-1 the, the SPRINT and SPRINT-2 studies looking at the role of lead in phase. So this is using PEG and RIBA before you ever add the directly acting antiviral. Now, this was studied in phase 3 for telaprevir, um, and ultimately they did not find that there was a benefit to using lead in. So that is not part of the FDA packaging insert, and that is not required for telaprevir, but certainly recognize that it also didn't cause harm. So if indeed you want to use the lead in phase to help you decide, one, does this patient require the addition of a DA? or are they a rapid interferon responder and therefore you could probably cure them in six to, four, you know, six to 12 months with interferon and robivirin alone. But two, if they are a patient who's a cirrhotic um, uh, and you're concerned about their ability to tolerate, this is also something that people use the lead-in phase for as a little bit of a liver stress test to decide whether or not indeed they can tolerate the treatments before you go and add on the DAA. And ultimately, if you find that they're not a very good responder to interferon, you have to make a real decision as to whether or not you think that the treatment with the current regimens is appropriate. And that's what this really gets to. So in, in the blue, the dark blue, purple bars, we have patients who had a greater than one log decline with the lead-in phase. So these, we, we would 
call these interferon responders. And then in the light blue, we have those patients who had a less than one log decline. And as you can see, we have the standard of care. We have patients who receive response-guided therapy. And then we have patients who received a full 48 weeks of treatment. And it's very clear here that those patients who were not good interferon responders had much lower rates of response to the addition of the directly acting antiviral. And then you could also ask, so what happened to all of those people that are missing? Those people all developed resistance um, and had relapse, virologic breakthrough, et cetera. And so this is a real conversation that you have to have with patients about whether or not you indeed want to add that DAA, but also helps you understand when patients actually do meet this criteria, they do extremely, extremely well and have very high SVR rates. And I think that's also very helpful uh, to help them as you're trying to encourage them to continue and to do well. So if we look at this in the setting of, so that's using a predictor at four weeks on drugs. So you've already made the decision to give this patient therapy. So what if you wanted to have a predictor before you put this patient on therapy so that you would make a decision as to whether or not you wanted to just wait until you had interferon sparing or until you had, say, quad therapy that may offer cure rates of close to 100%. Um, so you can see here that the IL-28 genotype does indeed help you predict whether or not someone is going to have interferon responsiveness. This is something that we actually knew from the original studies. So you can see here that whether you are of African descent or European descent, African descent in the dark blue bars, if you, are a, if you carry the CC genotype, um, then you actually are a very good interferon responder, and ultimately um, your chance of cure, as we saw, is very, very high. Um, if you do not, again, this does not exclude the fact that some of these patients will achieve a cure. It's just significantly lower, and that's important for patients to understand and ultimately for you to make a decision, how badly does this patient need therapy now? If they don't need therapy now, then, then clearly these are patients who may benefit from waiting the year and a half that we will have, um, where we will hopefully have the first nuke and the uh, next you know, second wave protease inhibitor that's dosed once daily, as long as those drugs make it through phase three studies. So this is also looking again at IL-28. Um, so this is looking at the number of patients who were able to shorten courses of therapy. So not only can you use that to, make it, to, to help them understand their chances of response, but specifically to help them understand whether or not they are looking at more likely six months or more likely a year of therapy. So in patients, this is from the phase three telepavir studies, in a patient who carries this CC genotype, um, they had a, about an 80% chance of achieving that ERVR criteria and going on to receive six months of therapy. Um, so I think that's a really nice number for you to help your patient understand. Whereas if they carry the TT unfavorable alleles, um, ultimately they are more likely by about a 50% chance to require your treatment. So these numbers can help you. Of course, they should not be used in, in and of themselves because they are not fantastic in terms of the accuracy, but that ultimately in combinations with their you know, viral load, with their genotype subtype, and with their background, you can help them understand where they stand. So I think improved tailoring of therapy specific to the patients at this time. So now we're going to turn to the fact that, indeed, most of you want to deliver biopsy, which would be right. Um, and so now you have it. This patient, of course, is stage four um, because it makes it much more interesting to talk about. And he is CHOP-PU class A. So he is a well-compensated cirrhotic who has normal laboratories. He does not have ascites. He's never had decompensation, never had bleeding, um, doesn't have evidence of portal hypertension. So how long would you say that this patient requires therapy? Um, would you ultimately say, well, it depends on the response-guided therapy, and we'll talk about response-guided therapy in this patient. Would you tell him that, he, that 24 weeks should be sufficient, that he needs 48 weeks, you know, because of his background and makeup, or that ultimately if he could tolerate it, you guys are going to go the, the long distance of 72 weeks, for which we all know patients have a very difficult time making. Um, so let's see. So most of you say that you would use then most of you actually said that you would go 48 weeks, which is the correct answer. This patient has cirrhosis. So for the package insert for both of these drugs, cirrhotics ultimately should receive a year of therapy because we see that these patients do not respond as well. Um, and so, so generally we don't recommend response-guided therapy in, in this, the cirrhotic patient population, similar to the null responder patient population as well. Um, and so 24 weeks would not be likely. Some of you said 72 weeks, so some of you out there don't like your patients very much. Um, 
but, but, but the truth is, you know, before we had uh, the, the directly acting antivirals, there were, you know, many of us maybe tried to push these patients to 72 weeks if they could make it. Ultimately, at this point, we have no data that there's a benefit to adding 72 weeks, even if your patient to is tolerating well. Um, so it seems as though with 48 weeks, these patients do very, very well in terms of their treatment response rates, and I, I doubt you're going to get more bang for the buck by continuing to add on the PEG-RIBA. So let's focus a little bit more on what role fibrosis does play. And, and, and again, I would argue that the main reason you got that liver biopsy was not so much to tell him how long he needed treatment or to make a decision about the length of treatment, but actually to help him decide whether or not he needs treatment. So I think most of us would argue, again, given that crystal ball, knowing we have interferon sparing coming, as we now have proof in multiple trials that interferon sparing is absolutely possible and, uh, and does cure a number of patients that are treatment naive. Um, so you're, you're really going to use that to say if you're a stage 01, especially as an HIV positive patient, 01, you're going to wait. Um, twos, some people who treat co-infection don't feel comfortable telling a two to wait. Um, but certainly for a hep C mono-infected stage two, I think most of us would recommend that those patients wait as well. Um, and you can make the decision for an HIV co-infected as to whether you feel comfortable with that with a stage two. I'll be honest with you, I I'm recommending all of my patients, mono and co, wait if they're stage zero, one, or two. Um, uh, because I think these treatments are coming very quickly. And certainly if you have the ability to get access to clinical trials for your patients, then obviously that would be optimal to get them access even sooner. So this is actually looking at, again, the SPRINT-2, bosepivir phase 3, treatment naive, um, looking at how patients do with the addition of bosepivir if, indeed, they have significant fibrosis. And I think this was a, 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 you know, a, a bit of a, a disappointment when we saw these numbers. Now, I will remind you that these are small numbers because if you look at the first phase 3 clinical trials, we had rates of about 10% of cirrhotics, if not less. And so these are small numbers, and as we all know, small numbers should be taken with a grain of salt. Um, but ultimately, if you look at all comers, remember the cure rates were somewhere around 70%, whether they were using response-guided therapy or 48 weeks of treatment. But that ultimately, when we look specifically at those patients who were stage 3, 4, so bridging fibrosis or cirrhosis, um, you see that with response-guided therapy, there was no difference compared to the standard of care. Um, they were achieving response rates of around 40%, um, which actually most of us would argue is extremely high in a cirrhotic patient population. Um, uh, so I think that this is because of the small numbers. I would expect that these numbers would be even lower in real true clinical practice. Um, and that maybe there was a little bit more of a benefit if they went 48 weeks, which is, again, why the recommendation is for cirrhotics to go 48 weeks, but that still we're not seeing much benefit in the, act, in the addition of the DAA in that setting. So I would argue with what we have coming, if you have a fully compensated cirrhotic who has platelet count in the 250 range, no evidence that they are having rapid progression of their liver disease. They don't drink. They have well-controlled HIV if they're positive. Uh, to be honest with you, we are recommending that those patients wait as well. And I know none of us want to have a patient decompensate uh, while sitting and waiting, but, you know, the platelet count is a fantastic marker of progression of liver disease. And if you monitor that very closely, I think you can, f you can feel comfortable saying that some of these patients, and a large majority of these patients, can wait. Right? So the, rate, the risk of decompensation is real on an annual basis, right? So somewhere between 4 to 8%. Um, but that's a 48% per year when we have, hopefully, two new drugs coming within a year and a half, if all goes well. Um, so that's just my practice. There may be providers in the room who don't feel comfortable with that, and you just have to find out where you feel comfortable living um, in this. But I think you really have to consider um, uh, the benefits and, as we'll get to in a, in a few slides, the risks of giving these cirrhotic patients therapy. So this is then breaking it out even further, and I think this is actually where it becomes helpful. So I don't know how many of you practice at the VA, but I do. Um, and so bosepravir is the drug of choice at the VA. Um, it takes literally an act of Congress to get to lapravir. Um, so, uh, so we actually use this quite frequently. Um, this is, is a, it's a little bit of a confusing slide, but what I really want, so the, the blue bars, again, are all comers. And the green bars are patients who are stage three or four. Then the difference between the two bars is patients who are still positive at week eight, so not achieving an ERVR, patients who are negative at week eight. So what I really want you to focus on is the green bar here are stage three, fours who are still positive at week eight. And as you can see, response-guided therapy, 20% cure. 48 weeks of therapy, which is what you'd be using, is a 30% chance of cure. This is critically important for whether or not you decide to continue patients. I think it becomes important to know, I mean, if they're at eight weeks positive and really struggling with significant anemia, you've already transfused them blood. I mean, I really think that you have to decide whether or not you're going to keep going for a patient like this. And again, risk-benefit, 
Where are they? Where's their liver disease? Do you think you have time to wait? Or do you have to push on and hope that, that your patient is one of the third who's going to respond to treatment? Um, you know, again, recognizing that the other majority are going to be ones who develop resistance. And I think many of us still don't fully understand the role of resistance in the setting of DAAs. And I think Dr. Wiles will talk a little bit more about that. Um, but for those who say that it's no problem, I'm not sure that I fully agree, um, especially if you think you want to expose them in a year and a half um, when, when, the first, when the next second wave protease inhibitor is available that has cross-resistance. So this is, I guess, the slide that I thought I was looking for earlier. So this is looking at telaprevir um, in the kind of the more difficult-to-treat patients that we think of at baseline from the PEG-RIBA era. Um, so we look at patients of African descent, patients with high viral loads, um, and patients who are stage 3, 4, all comers. And you can see that, indeed, these more difficult-to-treat patients do have significant benefit from the directly-acting antivirals. And that, and that in this study, again, these are tiny numbers. Um, but that, that overall, we do see good response rates. But if we break these down further, we do start to see, especially in patients who are treatment experienced, no responders, very, very, very poor response rates. Um, but we, we don't get into great detail about treatment experience patients. We can certainly talk about that in the Q&A. Um, uh, but, um, but these are, I think overall, I don't want to be too much of a Debbie Downer. I mean, the bottom line is that these drugs offer something great for patients who really need them now. But I think it's also important to recognize that the best is yet to come. So this is actually a study that was presented at the European Liver Meeting and I think has, has, has led to some discussion. There are clearly weaknesses with regards to this cohort study. This is a French study looking at cirrhotic patients. Um, these were partial responder relapsers, so these were all treatment experience cirrhotics. The whole idea was we just don't have a lot of data from the phase three of cirrhotics because there weren't many of them in the phase three studies. And, and, but yet, for many of us, these are the patients that we felt needed to be treated when these new DAAs came. And yet, and, and you're trying to apply data, um, very limited data from the phase three to the patient population you're taking care of. So this French cohort looked at all of their um, child PUA uh, treatment experience, not nulls, but otherwise, um, uh, cirrhotics, and, and found that these patients actually um, have a very difficult time making it through therapy. Um, so, so things to, shoot, to, to show, so this is telaprevir, this is bosepravir, numbers of about 170 and about 140, so pretty decent numbers here. But, but you know, a patient could count more than once um, in the setting of the actual outcomes. Um, so, so what you can see here is that uh, severe adverse events occurred in 30 to 50 percent of patients, uh, very, very high rates of severe anemia, 14.6%. Um, as many of you who have used these drugs now recognize, transfusion is now part of the standard of care and the management of anemia for many of these drugs, although clearly data showing that ribavirin dose reduction works. It works very well, and it does not sacrifice SVR in this setting. So that should be the primary mode. But if you cannot get the patient out of the hole quickly enough by dose reducing the ribavirin, then, um, then transfusion is a very nice way to go. Um, but, but showing that, indeed, these side effects are very, very real and really quite a bit higher in this cirrhotic, even well-compensated cirrhotic population. So something to be very aware of if you embark on that sort of therapy for those high-risk patients. Um, and, again, I think many people were very concerned about the, the numbers in terms of mortality. And I can tell you that, that uh, at our center we have certainly had several deaths in the setting of, uh, of DAA therapy. So question number five. So what do you tell the patient is the minimum amount of time that you're going to treat him based on the stopping rules that we now have? Um, and this is to get at the, the, uh, the, the roadmap of, 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 of futility rules and monitoring that is quite confusing for these new DAAs. So four weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, 24 weeks, I don't know, pick your number. Um, or does it depend on the DEA? Let's see what you guys say here. Okay, so many of you say that the minimum amount of time based on futility rules, majority of you say, 40% of you say 24 weeks. Um, this is a potpourri. Um, some of you say it depends on the DAA. So the right answer here is it depends on the DAA, right? So because of this lead-in phase, um, it takes longer to assess the response um, for bosepravir. Um, and I, now I'm going to walk you through that because this is critically important if you're going to treat these patients is knowing when to assess them. And, and I think the critically important thing and the very nice thing is we have earlier markers of response. Um, and so, and so th with the idea being that you do not want to leave these patients on the DAA if they are failing or if they are not going to achieve a cure because you will just have uh, virologic failure, uh, a breakthrough, and resistance. So uh, this is actually from a, a really nice 
um, uh, gastroenterology uh, special uh, um, uh, manuscript that they put out uh, recently in 2012. And so th these figures are actually taken from this, which was presented by Barrett and Freed. So um, this is looking at patients who are on telaprevir. So this is kind of the general way that you're going to treat these patients. Ultimately, right, it's 12 weeks of telaprevir. Um, with a response-guided therapy in patients who are treatment-naive or prior relapsers, um, up to 24 weeks. If they do not achieve that ERVR, then they continue for 48 weeks total for the PEG-RIBA, but the telaprevir is always 12 weeks. Again, there is phase three data showing that patients actually do very well with eight weeks of telaprevir, not part of the package insert, but if you just can't get your patient through more than eight weeks, um, the truth is they still get significant benefit, and that's actually very good for us to know, especially in patients with severe rash or, or anemia where you're requiring a lot of blood transfusions. Um, so this is the stopping rules, okay? So week four, so for telaprevir, the earliest that you're going to know if this patient needs to stop therapy is week four. If they do not have a viral load less than 1,000, then they discontinue all therapy um, because they are not going to respond clinically. Um, and that's really, really, really important. And then many of us check a week two as well um, because it can be very, very helpful to know if a patient's viral load, you know, was actually undetectable at week two and now it's 800, that patient should discontinue as well. And, and in the phase two, three studies, many of these patients had their virologic breakthrough in the first four weeks. And if you don't have that week two data, you may not know that. Um, and, and, then, and then some people may not check again until week 12. Uh, it's probably just my type A personality. I love HCV viral loads. <laughs> Makes me feel very good when I see them not detected. Um, so, but, but, but by the package insert, you must get week four. You must get week 12. They must have a viral load less than 1,000 to continue on therapy. If they do not, they must discontinue. And ultimately, by week 24, they should be undetectable. And if they're not, they discontinue. So you get three opportunities for stopping rules there. And then for bosuprevir, again, this is looking at treatment naives. Again, we have this lead-in phase. Ultimately, you then go an additional 24 weeks with bosuprevir if they meet criteria for response-guided therapy. If they don't and they're treatment naive, then you go 36 weeks with the bosuprevir, and then ultimately you complete 48 weeks um, uh, of uh, PEG-RIBA for patients who um, continue to be positive um, at 24 weeks. Uh, so so th th there is a difference because you can do 24 weeks, you can do 36 weeks of bisepravir, or ultimately in cirrhotics you could do 44 weeks of bisepravir. This is where it gets very, very confusing. But I do think the package insert is very, very clear in helping you understand what the length of treatment is based on your patient population. Uh, so here we have week 12. So a patient on bisepravir is going to go a full 12 weeks before you make a decision, although that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be monitoring viral loads prior to that, in my opinion, because virologic breakthrough will likely happen uh, before before you get to that point. And so uh, I would still recommend that you are monitoring viral loads um, at least at week um, eight uh, for these patients to make decisions as to wh where they are. Um, so, so week 12, they have to have a viral load less than 100. So this is different. Tilapavir less than 1,000, but sepavir less than 100. And then they have to be undetectable by week 24. So, so luckily, you don't have to remember this all. <laughs> this is in the package insert. It's very, very clear, but it's important for you to know um, as you're treating these folks that, that there is a big difference between the drugs. Okay, so question number six. What adverse effects would you discuss with this patient as you're sitting there um, helping him understand, you know, what his, the next six months to year of his life is going to be like? Um, uh, and what are the big issues that we have with adverse events? And I am not going to go into this in great detail because you're going to hear a whole talk from Dr. Sherman this afternoon, not only about what these are, but also about how to manage them. Uh, but I did want to just kind of introduce the, the, the idea to you. So let's see, all of the above, excellent. So, so you guys are well-versed in the adverse events of, uh, of these drugs. So I'm definitely not going to spend a lot of time here, but as you all know, um, uh, this, these drugs do not improve the adverse event profile of pagan riba. They add to uh, the adverse event profile. Uh, with telaprevir, we're seeing a lot of puritis and rash, and I think many of you probably know that the puritis um, can be quite concerning and does actually involve the perirectal area, which is very difficult for some of these patients to, to deal with and manage. Although my experience has been in patients who truly follow the high-fat diet, um, and many of my patients hate peanut butter by the end of their <laughs> 12 weeks, um, that they actually can do very, very well, but it really comes to sticking with that high-fat diet and making sure that they're having very good absorption of the drug. Um, 
So, uh, and, and anemia, again, so I would argue that pruritus rash and anemia are very common for telaprevir. We saw that again in those cirrhotics. Um, and that anemia and dyscusia is a very common issue with bocetprevir. Again, patients will require transfusion if you treat enough of them. Um, you will require rubavirin dose reduction um, uh, if you treat enough of them. And, and again, uh, Dr. Sherman will get into this in great detail. So, so I think this is relatively repetitive, showing that about 50% of patients in the Bosopavir study had anemia, and almost over 40% required EPO. This is significantly higher than in my general practice with PEG and RIBA, even in our HIV-infected patients. Um, and then if you look at rates of discontinuation for telapavir from the phase three advanced study, you can see here that in patients who went the full 12 weeks of telapavir, relatively high discontinuation rates as compared to their colleagues who were just getting the, resp- the, who were just getting the standard of care. Um, so, so this is real. We are much better, I think, at managing these, the package inserts and the information that the drug companies give you in terms of how to manage them, I think really has helped improve the Um, the dropout rate and the uh, treatment of these adverse events, but they are real. um, And it's very, very important that you feel comfortable with how to manage them um, before you kind of get started on treating these patients. So question number seven. So now we're going to turn in the last um, few slides to the HIV-infected patient population. Uh, So if this patient had co-infection, what would be the most limiting issue for starting him on DAA therapy? Would it be the fact that patients with HIV do respond poorer? Um, do they have more side effects? Uh, do they have more drug interactions? Or is it all of the above? So let's see what you guys think. So some of you, most of you said all of the above, um, and about a quarter of you said drug interactions. And I would argue that based on the current data from the phase two studies, uh, that we have presented at Croy and then again at Easel, um, that indeed I think HIV patients do very, very well with the DAAs, and, and ultimately if this pans out with SVR24 data, which I suspect it will because now we know that SVR12 equals SVR24, um, that they will indeed have the same cure rates. So we actually hope that with DAAs and ultimately with interferon sparing, hopefully HIV will no longer be a risk factor for poor response to therapy. Increased adverse effects so far does not seem to be the case either. Um, so the numbers are very similar, if not maybe even a little bit better in HIV-infected patients undergoing treatment with DAAs. So ultimately, the real issue is drug-drug interactions, and it's a real issue. Um, and, and really is uh, probably the most important thing in terms of knowledge with regards to treating patients who are co-infected. So I'm going to try to move through the, those uh, slides, and I know that Dr. Flexner will be talking about drug-drug interactions in the issue, so I'm not going to go into great detail about that um, because you're going to get a whole talk on that, but just to recognize that drug-drug interactions are an issue, that specific DAAs um, uh, or specific ARVs are required in terms of which drug you choose, and I will review the new DHS guidelines that address this issue, um, I think, very nicely and succinctly at, as a la- one of the last slides. So this is the study of telaprevir in co-infected patients. Many of you you have probably seen this data, given you're a, a very uh, astute HIV-treating population. So this is from Croy just uh, several months ago. Um, but this is, so this is the, the phase two. I think the important things to recognize are that there was no response-guided therapy, although that isn't in the phase three. Um, and so the, these patients received 12 weeks of telaprevir, followed by 48 full, or with full, full 48 weeks of pagan riba. Um, there was a no ART arm, and there was an arm that included efavirenz and azanavir, and this was based on the drug-drug interaction data to suggest that these were safe drugs. And I think overall this is SVR12 data, um, and I don't think that this will change to SVR24, but as you can see in all comers, which is the blue bar, about a 70% SVR rate, which is exactly what we saw in the, H- I- the HCV mono-infected patient population. I think many of us would argue that indeed patients on standard of care did awfully well. I wish I could get numbers had got, could, could get numbers like this in my HIV popu- patient population with PEG and RIBA. So I'm not sure what that's all about, but ultimately this looks very, very good for our patients. Um, and there is no difference really between patients on atazanavir or efavirenz, which we would would, would not really expect. These are very small numbers, so any difference here really is, is, is a numbers game of one patient or so. When it comes to bocepervir, again, no response-guided therapy in the phase two, only response-guided therapy in the phase three. So for those of you who are treating off-label, and I should have mentioned that I will be discussing the use of bocepervir and telaprevir um, <laughs> off-label use, um, that, uh, that, that generally speaking, you're going to be giving these patients a year of therapy until we have data that response-guided therapy is uh, appropriate um, 
for them. So, so again, lead-in plus 44 weeks of bosepravir is what we're seeing for, uh, for the phase two study. Um, and uh, the dosing of bosepravir again here is TID. And again, the numbers, as you can see, so this is SVR12, um, which is presented, at, again, actually at Corey and at Easel, showing about a 60% cure rate in patients who are co-infected in all comers. Um, this study did primarily was patients on protease inhibitor, HIV protease inhibitors, so adizanavir, calitra, um, or lipinavir um, and darunavir. Uh, there were some patients on rotigravir. There was a single patient, I think, on a Fabrins, but they were not supposed to get into the study. I don't know how that happened, which is based on the, DD, the DDI data. Um, so these are mostly patients on protease inhibitors. Um, that being said, once this was you know, presented, we now have DDI da data with the additional PIs um, showing that there was significant drug-drug interaction. And so that is being worked through before these patients can be exposed to HCV PIs and HIV PIs in the phase three study. But we hope to have that safety data for everyone um, as we move forward. So very good numbers, right? 60 to 70% cure rates. This is fantastic for our patients. There were patients who had virologic breakthrough, which was, again, of concern, HIV virologic breakthrough, given the drug-drug interactions. This is why we need more safety data before we expose patients on some of our PI, HIV PIs to the HCV PIs. And that's, I think, the summary slide here will be the release of the guidelines. So uh, I'm sure many of you have seen this by now. But what this, I think that this is great that the DHHS went this far to present this. Um, what they show here is that in patients who are not on ART but are HIV infected, so do not meet criteria, long-term non-progressors or lead controllers, use either drug, doesn't make a difference. But it, and if they're on raltegravir, given the lack of significant drug-drug interactions, indeed, you can also use either bosepravir or telaprevir. But if they are on adizanavir at this time, until we have further data, telaprevir is considered the only safe uh, uh, HCV PI, and this is the same for efavirenz. Recommend, again, recognizing that for telaprevir, because of the drug-drug interaction before, between efavirenz and telaprevir, you need to increase the dose of the efavirenz, I mean, of the telaprevir um, to three tabs three times a day. There is data to support using BID dosing of telaprevir in patients who are on raltegravir, adizanavir, um, and, and the phase three study actually will study that. So I think BID dosing for HIV-infected patients on select regimens is possible, and, and hopefully we will have data to support that um, from the phase three studies. Um, so they actually go into also detail about well, then what do you do with your HIV-infected patients who don't meet the criteria described above. Um, and, and many of our patients are on darunavir, lapinavir, other medications, and how do you move forward with that? And I think, again, it gets to the whole um, premise of this talk, I hope, which is you need to assess the need for the drug. So do they need HCV therapy now? Because now we're getting into a more risk benefit, which is that ultimately are going to have to change their HIV regimen. And if you're going to do that, recognizing the risk of breakthrough, especially in patients who are highly HIV treatment experienced. Um, and so you really are going to have to weigh the options in terms of making decisions. The other issue here is if you are going to switch patients or if you're going to have significant drug-drug interactions, um, recognizing that the dosing of telaprevir is only 12 weeks versus bosepravir, which may be 44 or 36 weeks for these patients. So if you're going to be dealing with drug-drug interaction issues or switching therapies for the period of time that you're on the HCVPI, then telaprevir may be a little bit of a better option right now because you only need it for 12 weeks. So you can switch, get your 12 weeks out of the way, and then ultimately you can switch back if you need to. Um, and that is something that they do discuss here um, on the last bullet point. So I think this is actually very helpful and fantastic that the DHHS you know, took this step to try to help HIV providers um, move forward in considerations of treatment, even while these drugs are off-label. So take-home points, I hope, um, is that, in my opinion at least, risk stratification remains very, very important for the treatment of HCV, whether they're mono-infected or whether they're co-infected. Um, that patient-tailored decision-making is becoming all the more important, and I think this is fantastic for our patients. We have lots of predictors for baseline, baseline to help you have a conversation with the patient, and ultimately then we have viral kinetic markers to also help you make decisions on add DAA, yes, no, continue therapy, yes, no, how are we going to go from here? Um, this is not a one-stop shop. So ultimately, we can't just pick, you know, one drug and use it for everyone. I think you really have to make decisions uh, with the, by the, based on the patient on which drugs you want to use um, and how you're going to do that. Patient education and expectations, I think, are critically important in initiating DAAs in, this patient, in these patients. The new monitoring and stopping rules, so just make sure that you review that package insert to understand how frequently you're going to test viral loads um, and, uh, and how you're going to use them in terms of discontinuing therapy. And ultimately, I would argue that the best is yet to come. And I don't mean today. I mean the HCV therapies uh, in, in, in the future. So I think that's it.
Thank you. Thanks, Susanna. That was terrific uh, and a, a great introduction to the, the treatment aspects. Now, I'm sure there's going to be questions, uh, so you can scribble them on your card. You can also go to the mics. Uh, I will just uh, point out two important things. Firstly, that we're going to f move the break up before David's talk, if that's okay with David. They're, they've checked your flight, and it's okay. And they checked with your wife, and it, it's all, it's all going to be good. So... Um, uh, we're we're going to move the break up, but we're going to so we're going to take the Q and A, and then we're going to do the break. But um, a couple of things while we're uh, gathering the questions. Uh, one is that in the back there will be these uh, beads uh, for sale. Now these are made by um, uh, women in uh, in Uganda, and I think elsewhere in Sub-Saharan Africa. This is the Beads for Life movement, and uh, they use these to raise uh, funds to support. Uh, their efforts to uh, take care of persons with HIV. So it's a very worthwhile cause. I've actually seen them making them. They make them out of magazines, I think. Uh, and uh, it's a really terrific cause. Uh, we'll, we'll put one on, Suzanne, yes. here. To kind of, and, and one goes on SAG, uh, <laughs> just to kind of remind everyone. And then I'll wear the other one. Um, <laughs> So beads for life. Now, the, 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 there's also uh, fundraising on support of Accordia, which is uh, an organization that uh, it, it promotes a, a, a understanding and capacity building relating to HIV throughout sub-Saharan Africa, right now principally in Uganda and Nigeria. Um, so with that, uh, let's shift into uh, the questions uh, for, for Susanna. Uh, so, so tell us more about the, the twice-a-day telapavir dosing. There, there's uh, some interest in, in, is that something that you can really do right now, or are you waiting for studies? Or right. um, So I think, again, this becomes uh, what, what I do and not necessarily what everyone else would do in the room, but, um, but there is data in HCV mono-infected patients that uh, BID dosing at 1125, so three tabs BID, um, is is uh, the same efficacy um, as the TID dosing. So that, given that, um, that was moved forward for the phase three in co-infected patients who are not on a favrins, because obviously with the favrins you require the TID dosing of the higher dose. Um, so it is considered to be safe. It was safe enough to move forward in phase three. That's what we're doing in the phase three study. And actually in my patients that I'm treating off-label outside of phase three, I am using the BID dosing in patients who are not on ephavirenz. Um, again, it would be off-label, um, but it is something that I think we have enough safety data to support, and it's certainly significantly easier for our patients. So patients on raltegravir, patients who are on atazanavir, patients who are not on any ARVs, um, it's 1125 BID and, and is considered to be safe. Uh, but, uh, you know, other providers in the room may not feel comfortable with that. We all just have to decide where we stand. Yeah. How about, um, let's drill down a little bit more on that, uh, your comments on staging. Some of these folks are going to be tomorrow considering treatment for the first time. You, you said you would wait even on a well-compensated cirrhotic. Um, say a little bit more about how that plays out practically. Are you... Uh, um, who are you treating? Who did you treat in the last month? <laughs> <laughs> so, so most of the patients that I'm treating are patients who have um, significant liver disease um, who uh, are very eager. So one is patients. So if your patient walks in the, in the, in the room and wants therapy, I'm not, telling, I'm not refusing to treat patients. So I'm actually absolutely treating patients who, um, who want treatment. Two, I handpicked very early on my relapsers, um, my partial responders, who I know have very good chances of cure. So I think most people said, pick the low-hanging fruit. You'll feel good about yourself. Um, and, then, and the patients will feel good, and then you'll be more confident in moving forward. And I think that actually for, for people who are really starting to get their, their feet wet with this, that's actually really not a bad idea. Um, and then ultimately, am I treating cirrhotics? I am. I mean, I am treating a number of cirrhotics right now. Um, but the, the issue, again, becomes who's the patient um, and how well do I think they'll do and where are they? So most of the patients that I'm treating who are cirrhotics have lower platelet counts. So I don't mean 60, but I generally mean in the 190 range. Patients who I really think I need to get on drug. The problem is these are the patients who also may not do well, so you have to be very, very careful. Um, so, those, so those are the patients with cirrhosis that I'm treating. Um, and again, then those hand-picked patients that, uh, that are relapsers or, or, or non-responders. Yeah. Mike goes first. So with your BID dosing, are you 
No. No. Nope. 20 grams is enough. Right. 20 grams, of, yeah. Yeah. All right. This morning you were just, when you started to dread the, the, the session, you were dreading the question about bocepivir versus telavivir. Which, which drug are you going to So, So we've, we've got to, to, to deal with that one. When you, um, do you have, uh, should, should people starting for the first time try a little bit of both? Should they pick one and commit to it? Or, mm-hmm. or, or what, what's your suggestions on, on I think that's a fantastic question. So ultimately, I think an HIV infection is actually very easy because I make my decisions on bisoprivir versus telaprivir um, based on what medications they're on. Um, and for example, at the, at the VA, um, if I, I have now argued well with central office to be able to get to Laprevere for the patients who are on a Favarins or Adizanavir for which I don't have safety data. Um, and I, they get to Laprevere, my patients on Ortegravir or who are on no drug get Bosepravir. Um, I think ultimately, in a, if you're treating a hep C mono-infected patient where really the kind of bets are off, you can make decisions based on, um, you know, Ultimately, do they have a skin condition? Do they have something where you're afraid that giving them um, telaprevir because of the rash will, will actually be a significant risk to them? I don't know about you, but a lot of my HIV patients hear the word rash, and they want nothing to do with it. So often my HIV patients make the decision of bocepravir because they don't want to have a rash. But I think ultimately if, you, if there's nothing from evidence that can help you make a decision, my advice actually is to do both. Um, you know, I think initially at Duke, to be honest with you, we started off with a lot of telaprevir in our mono-infected patients, started, started having a lot of side effects, and so ultimately started switching and trying out bosepravir, and then ultimately got a good feel for one or the other, and then made that decision with patients based on the patient. Um, so I think it's fair to, to try both if you don't have another compelling reason to try one or the other. So what about the, these high rates, uh, the high SVR rates? Do you think that, that maybe the, the best patients were cherry-picked for the co-infection trials, or do you think that's going to really bear out in, in, in practice? Of course. Both. <laughs> so I think we, okay. yeah, um, yes to that. Um, so I, I think ultimately, certainly we recognize that clinical practice um, does not always correlate uh, with what we see in clinical trials. Uh, that, and, and I think, you know, again, looking at the telaprevir data, the patients who were in the standard of care arm did extremely well, and I think that's always a marker of how healthy that patient population is. That being said, um, you know, we all have those patients in our clinics, and those are patients that I think ultimately you may want to be treating um, and, and recognizing the, the reason that's an important question is it's about patient expectation, right? So um, you want to be able to give a patient uh, an idea of where they stand. And, and I think regardless of the clinical trials, you have the means to do that with many of the baseline markers that we talked about and the early viral kinetic markers that we talked about. And that's really where this becomes relevant. Uh, does the fact that um, with uh, uh, the two DAAs, the fact that the patient may require less a length of time on a bocepravir influence your decision uh, for which drug? Absolutely. I mean, and it also influences the patient's decision. Um, so when I present this to a you know, and I don't, you know, I, um, I try to, to, to provide the information to the patient and help them, to, you know, allow them to have a role in deciding. Although ultimately, you know, I think I, I'd tell them, if I were you, here's what I'd do. Um, but, but there's no doubt that when a patient hears, I could take, you know, one drug for 12 weeks, um, you know, it's three pills in the morning and three pills at night versus, you know, three pills three times a day, they, they have an idea of which one they think is easier. And I do think ultimately when you compare the drugs, given similar efficacies, um, that indeed that, that plays a role, right? Because the, the, the less complicated the regimen, the better ultimately they will do in terms of taking the drugs and having appropriate re- response. So I think you absolutely have to consider that. And, and yes, I do consider that. Have you, do you, have you treated a genotype 1 without using a DAA in the sense, since they've been approved? No, that's a hard sell, one. Yeah. Um, but two, I actually don't have many CC uh, genotype patients uh, in my clinic. But, um, but I do think ultimately if I had a, a CC, I actually would have a real conversation with them. And I think the big issue that people get to is if you have a, if you have a CC patient who maybe has a lower HCV viral load that's less than a million, I think you could really argue for treating that patient for six months if they have rapid virologic response. The problem is we don't have evidence to support that. So it depends on how comfortable you are going outside the clinical data that we have. Um, because I think what many people argue is, sure, CCs respond very well, but if you go by the data, you still have to give them 48 weeks of PEG and RIBA. And if you use a DAA, then you can shorten their course to six months. Um, and so that becomes part of the issue is, uh, is whether or not you feel willing to treat your CCs um, for only six months. And I think in select patients that is possible, but I just haven't had a patient who meets that criteria yet. 
Since, well, what fraction of, of all the racial difference does the Owl 28 test predict? Does it? Yes. Uh, so, so it's 50 percent. So, if you look at, I guess what I should say is, if you look at the uh, different, the variation in SVR by um, in, in patients for treatment response, 50 percent of that variation is explained by IL-28, which means there's another 50 percent that's explained by something else. And race and IL-28 are independent. So, so when you look at, you know, if you add race to IL-28, then you actually can explain a, a much larger percentage of those patients, and there's still something missing. Um, and that's where we add in then fibrosis level, viral load, and you start to get to much closer to 100% in terms of being able to determine that. But, but it's, a, it's 50%. So it's the, it's the largest. I mean, in terms of the amount, it explains the largest amount of the variation, but not all of it. Does weight or obesity still predict response? It does, much to my dismay. How about, um, um, <laughs> sorry, I'm going to hit you with some. Although, although I would say that, you know, we just, most of the studies, if you look at it, they, they break it down in their, you know, supplementary material as a BMI less than or greater than um, 30. And, you know, how many patients who had BMIs of 40 or 50, for which I have several patients, um, I'm sure there were either none or, or but, but, but ultimately with a cutoff of 30, there is a difference. And the, the, uh, some good drug interaction questions, I'm going to put them off to Dr. Flexner's talk. Um, you, another, you mentioned that you could use lead-in for either, mm-hmm. even though it's approved for bosepivir. Correct. Um, and that's the answer to this question. Um, are you, and, I think, yeah, and the reason you may do that is, that it's, again, maybe, maybe the stress test or to help get uh, virologic data to help you decide if you want to add a DAA. Staging... Uh, with non-invasive, we haven't really. You, you mentioned uh, that you still mm-hmm. prefer the liver biopsy, but there's mm-hmm. a lot of folks that uh, have greater access to uh, FibroSure testing, for example, right. which you can order from LabCorp or uh, Quest. Right. So, it's, do you feel like that can be a substitute in certain instances to give you, if, you if you're holding off on nearly everyone, right. then how how much why defend the biopsy? Yeah. Well, I think. <laughs> Well, the, the biopsy helps me hold off on everyone because <laughs> when I biopsy, right, if the, you're going to do now, some, the same right, thing regardless of the right, result. Right. Uh, well, so 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 is Ken in the room? Is Dr. Sherman in the room? Um, so the the bottom line is that I know I know one that this will be discussed in detail yeah. in the case to come. So I don't want to steal the thunder, of Dr. Sag. Um, but that ultimately, I I use uh, non-invasive tests very very infrequently. So I I do believe that ultimately. Um, we have no gold standard, but the best that we currently have is a liver biopsy. That we recognize that probably the most common non-invasive marker people use is the FibroShore uh, test. And that ultimately it does very well um, on the extremes, no scar, cirrhosis. So I maybe would say that I maybe send a handful of these a year. Those are people where my pretest probability for cirrhosis is extremely high. And I just want to have a marker to help me make decisions about screening and further management for that cirrhotic. Um, but that in the middle... Um, there's no benefit. And if you're really picking a number, like I said, and you're recommending that twos and threes, um, I mean, that zeros, ones, and twos weight, that FibroSure is not going to help you make that decision. And that's why I use liver biopsy. But I I also understand there's a reality, which is that you may not have access. Um, And there are other tests. Platelet counts are very good for assessing fibrosis. um, And that if you can get a FibroSure and it's the only option that you have, just recognize the limitations. ROC, that's somewhere between 0.6 and 0.7 um, for stages you know, 1, 2, 3, um, but an ROC that's a bit higher if they come back saying cirrhosis or no scar at all. So you, you, know, you have to practice, make those medical decisions, recognizing the weaknesses of the test that you have to use. Okay, let's say someone is on telapavir and still has detectable uh, uh, HCV, so they fail the stop rule. Would you switch to bosepavir? No. Definitely not. Um, and you guys are HIV providers, so I bet you all understand why, uh, right? So if they're, if they're failing, then they have resistance, and these drugs have the same resistant mutants, um, cross-resistance, and so there's absolutely no benefit um, at all that, that, that we know of in, in, in switching in that What setting. about if there's rebound? So you, you, you went, went negative on Tlavir and then rebounded. Would you come in with the other drug or anything right. like that? So, the, so again, you know, rebound usually is due to resistant variants, so the yeah. answer for that would be, would be absolutely not. And, and again, we just and, and ultimately, say you had a patient who relapsed or something and you want to consider retherapy, we don't have data to support retreatment at this time with these drugs, but certainly, ultimately, um, with, with newer drugs that, that may be in a different class, um, that's where you would maybe want to try to re-expose these patients with a different class of drugs, which we hope to have available again um, in, in about a year and a half. 
We're going to put off the management of the serotic question to another talk because that one's coming up uh, as well. Let's let's finish with the the. Um, you know, would you use RGT on a co-infected person? So the patients that I'm currently treating off-label, I am not. Um, I'm telling my patients that they are getting a year of therapy. Part of that, to be honest with you, is many of the patients that I'm treating are stage three. Um, and or cirrhotics, because of that, I think they deserve a year of treatment anyway. Um, so I'm not. I'm, I'm kind of sticking to the rules on that one, and, and I'm waiting until we have data for response guided therapy. Like, I have a relapser who was, who was, re, who was negative at one week. I'm sure he could do response guided therapy. He developed ITP the last time I treated him with interferon. Um, so the less interferon I give him, the, be, the, you know, the, the more. But I, I just don't feel comfortable at this point until I have data to support that. So okay. That's great. Let's, let's finish with one important point which comes up in, in practice. Uh, let's say your, your, your test result comes back and it says that the virus is not quantified, right. but it's detected. What, what, and, it, and it's week three uh, and instead of week four. Or no, it's week five, uh, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, in real life, that kind of stuff happens. Well, right. What are you doing with right. that information? Yeah. Well, I think we now, you know, I think the package inserts are also very clear on this, that a detectable but less than the lower limit of quantification is not the same as an undetectable. And that ultimately, um, the, the package inserts recommend that you use an undetected. That is what you have to follow. So, so and I think this, gets, this is, becomes the most important at that 24-week time point. For all of these, they have to be undetectable at week 24. Um, obviously, at the other markers, you have a less than 100 or less than 1,000, so that becomes less relevant. Although I would argue that if you had a patient at week four who was undetectable, at week six, you decide to check another viral load, and now it is detected but less than your lower limit of quantification. Um, that should make you feel very, very uncomfortable, uh, and you should repeat that patient's test immediately because the likelihood is that they're rebounding. Um, and so, so there is a difference between those tests. We clearly recognize that. And, uh, and you, you kind of need to stick to the not-detected tests. Great. Well, um, we're going to stop there. Thank, and thank Susanna for really take, shouldering the burden of, uh, of treatment. because. <laughs>